Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning. Thanks for bringing the church uh, into this new space uh, for us. And for those of you that are joining us online, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, around your dining room table. Thanks for uh, inviting us into those spaces. And if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, whether here in person or uh, online, my name is Jamie, and it's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Uh, and it's my joy uh, and privilege as well to get to open up God's Word as we are in this series, Journeying Through the Great Book of John. It's a series we've entitled Come and See. And that's a theme that shows up throughout this book, this invitation like, hey, just come and see. Like, bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring your insecurities, bring your highs and lows, celebrations, concerns. Like, just bring it all to Jesus and let's get to know the real Jesus and find out, like, how does. How does who he is like impact your life and my life? Not just someday off in the future, as important as that is, but like right here and right now. And so this morning, we are now into chapter two. We took about five weeks to go through chapter one, and we intentionally did that because the things that are present in chapter one are like these kind of seeds that get planted, and then throughout the book, they kind of set the trajectory of like where the story is heading, all right? And last week, we had the first words of Jesus, and then this morning, what we're going to look at is John chapter two. So I invite you, if you've got a Bible, to turn there, or you can make use of, if you get your phone out, go to cplife.church, again, cplife.church, and the second card, as you kind of swipe over, you'll see, says message notes. And so Anything that is like up on the screen this morning, including the text, uh, is there. There's space that you can actually take notes, email them to yourself afterwards. So again, cplife.church. But we get the first sign. The, the book of John is laid out uh, in several different ways, but one of the kind of consistent themes is John keeps introducing us to uh, these particular signs. And so we are told in this passage, it's the first sign, all right? And so if you think about the first sign that Jesus chose to do, like, it's pretty important. Like, if you thought about, like, hey, this is this inaugural thing. Like, this is the debut. Okay, why this particular one? And so that's what we're going to look at together this morning. And so I want to go ahead and read this passage, John chapter 2, 1 to 12, and then we'll make our way through this text. And so this is the word of the Lord. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman, Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Verse 5, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim, and then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter, and they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And he called the groom and he told them, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after people are drunk, the inferior. The fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. All right, fascinating account, all right? I mean, there's just so many layers here, not to mention just Jesus and his mother, and what's that interaction all about, which we'll get to uh, in a minute. But I want to kind of lay out for you what I think is happening here with this first sign is that there's a purpose that's being revealed, and then John, in some really clever, interesting ways that help tell the overarching story, tells us about, all right, not only 
Jesus's purpose, but the provision that Jesus is making for us. I want to explore those two things and then just ask us at the end to consider, hey, what are some of the personal applications? Like, what does this look like practically in your life and in my life? Like, how does what's happening here a couple thousand years ago at a wedding in Cana in some small town community, like, what in the world does that have to do with your life and my life here in 2021? Like, what is actually going on? All right, so the first thing we'll look at is this purpose. Now, I made mention of this a moment ago. If you think about the fact that John tells us this, Jesus did this the first of his signs. There's gonna be seven signs, just like there are seven I am statements, like I'm the good shepherd, I'm the light of the world, all those sort of things that take place. John groups these things in seven. This is the first of his signs. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, it's pretty cool, certainly, and yet it does sort of beg the question of like, really, like, there's a catering problem, and this is Jesus' first thing to solve? Like, really, what's happening here? Like, why in the world did he choose this as his first sign? Like, if it was up to me, and I'm writing the, the story, I think I might have, you know, I might have flown in, like, just fly, and then I would have started raising some people from the dead, maybe, or what, whatever, right? Which Jesus does the raising people from the dead later on. But why is this his first sign? What is actually happening here, all right? Because Jesus' mother just comes up and says, hey, Jesus, all right? He's about 30 years old now. This is his kind of debut, or he's been living in relative obscurity up to this point. And she's like, they don't have any wine. And is he there simply to fix this problem? I don't know if you remember uh, the, the movie. Um, this, it's a Will Ferrell movie called Kicking and Screaming. Perhaps you've seen this, um, all right? And uh, in the particular film... Will Ferrell, he'd been this really kind of subdued guy, and his son isn't very good at soccer, and he just kind of is like, oh, whatever about sports, we all get a participation trophy, like whatever, right? Like that's kind of how he rolls. But then the competitive juices kick in, and he is like just bent on winning, all right? And he finds himself with a legendary football coach by the name of Mike Ditka of the Chicago Bears, if you know football. Um, somehow he ends up with Mike Ditka as his assistant coach. And there's this particular scene kind of midway through the movie where Will Ferrell has gathered the kids around. He's doing this like pregame speech and he literally starts talking about like hurting the players on the other team. And it's like, whoa, whoa. And Mike Ditka steps in. He's like, hey, you, you can't be doing that. And Will Ferrell just kind of bows up and is like, you don't, you don't say that. Who do you think you are, All right? And Mike Ditka is like, I'm Mike Ditka, right? And, and Will Ferrell looks at him and he's like, no, you're my assistant coach. You're here to back me up and get me juice boxes, all right? He's like, and I'm feeling thirsty. Go get me a juice box, juice box guy, right? And Mike Ditka is just not gonna have any of it and they, they storm off after they have this, this big fight. And it's this really comical thing because it's like, how dare he tell Mike Ditka, the legendary coach, you're here to get me a juice box, all right? Um, go get me a juice box. Now, I think of that and I'm like, is that what's happening here? Like the God of the universe has shown up and his mother rolls up and is just like, Jesus, like you need to get them some more wine. Like what, why is this the first sign? Like what actually is happening here? Now, it would be helpful to know, not to minimize it. It actually is a big deal culturally, certainly. But then there's also more that's going on. So culturally, we think of weddings as a big deal. Lots of planning, lots of preparation, all right? Um, it probably for most people, like it's the biggest event of, of the life, their life, right? I mean, there's a lot that, that typically goes, goes into it, all right? From a, like flowers and guest lists and food and menus and venues and dresses and like all, all of that stuff. But in the culture back then, if you can imagine this, it's an even bigger deal. Like it's not just the day. It's literally a multi-day event 
the entire town gets invited. So when you're like, who's on the guest list? This person, do they make the cut or not? No, you literally are like, who's in the town? Cool, the town's coming. Like, that was sort of the expectation. And so the whole town would show up. And if you had something like the wine run out, it wasn't in this culture, because it's a shame culture and it's communal, it wasn't just like, oh, well. When Mary tells Jesus, like, go get the, you need, the wine is run out, like, this is a big deal. Like, this particular bride and groom, this will follow them forever. Like, they literally will be the people in the town decades later. Like, oh, can you remember so-and-so's wedding? Remember when the wine ran out? Oh, remember what a debacle that was? Like, they would carry this shame. N.T. Wright, the theologian, in his commentary on this said, running out of wine was not just inconvenient, but a social disaster and disgrace. And the family would have to live with the shame of it for a long, long time. It even could bring bad luck on, believed to be bringing bad luck on their married life. And so what do we do with this? Like, what's going to happen here? And so on one level, Jesus shows immense compassion that he actually solves their problem, right? He turns the water in, into wine and problem solved and the party can go on. And that is amazing and it gives us insight into the God that we worship. And yes and amen to all of that. And yet, let me put before you, something else is going on. Like John has already done through the first chapter, and in his gospel, there are layers upon layers upon layers. Like there's the story, and then there's the story underneath the story. And that's what we want to press into, because what happened at this wedding a couple thousand years ago is not just about water being turned into wine. God himself is communicating something about his nature and his character and about ultimately what he's up to in the world. In fact, for the Jewish people, they would have lived with this awareness that they were part of a story that despite the affliction and the hardship and the heartache and the pain, God at some point was going to do something. And not only was he going to do something just in general, there was such specificity to it that the prophet Isaiah, and I'll read this in a moment here, began speaking and prophesying about a celebration, a feast, a party that the Lord himself is going to throw, and it's going to go on forever. So you might think that you've been part of some epic celebrations before. Like, this goes beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. And so when Jesus shows up a couple thousand years ago, and there's a wedding, and the whole town is invited, yes, he's helping that circumstance. But more importantly, he's showing to us there's this storyline, there's this thread, and I am here to bring about this reality. And so in Isaiah chapter 25, we read these words. On this mountain, and look at the details Isaiah gives, all right? The Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. Just stop there for a moment. He's so excited about this. He literally mentions, like in this short opening sentence, there's going to be really good meat and really good wine. It's not coming out of a box. You didn't pick it up for $4 at Trader Joe's. Like, it's legit stuff, right? That's what he's talking about. And so he continues, and he says, On this mountain, then, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. And on that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. 
The prophet Isaiah spoke of a time when there would be a Messiah, when there would be one that would come and would set everything right. Every tear would be wiped away and we would be ushered in to the most amazing epic party that you've ever been part of. And so the people back then lived with this awareness, lived with this expectation of like, this is where the story is heading. And they, they longed for this day to come. And so I put before you the reason, one of the reasons that Jesus does this as his first sign is to say, you know who's the master of that banquet? It's me. You know who is the Lord of this party and of this feast? It's me. You know who's going to make Isaiah chapter 25 come true? It's me. And what I'm doing here in Cana at this wedding is just a foretaste. It's just a little appetizer of what is to come. Like, I am doing something in the world. And so in John chapter 2, verse 10, we hear this. It says, everyone sets out the fine wine first, all right? Then after people are drunk, the inferior but you have kept the fine wine until now. So at one level, it tells us this. Can you imagine? Like, they thought that they'd, you know, they'd spent the money, they, they put out the, the good stuff, and then it runs out, which there would have been a lot of shame, as we said. But then, contrary, now the story's not going to be told about, like, look at this family that messed up, this bride and groom. Now it's going to be like, can you believe that party? Like, we stopped the stuff at the beginning, like day one, two, three. Like, it was, it was good. The wine was flowing. It was really enjoyable. And then they brought out even better stuff. Like, this is showing us at one level just God's lavishness, his grace. Like, if you think of God as some sort of cosmic killjoy, you actually haven't read the Bible. Like, the fact that Jesus does this as his first sign, and it's not just really good wine for a few people to share. Did you read the description? You got six jars, all right, that between 20 to 30 gallons. So on the low end, 120, 180 gallons, the high end, let's just call it 150 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine, right? And not only that, it's the best of the best of the best. Nobody's ever had anything that tasted this good, and there's 150 gallons of it. And so if you and I view God with sort of a scarcity mindset that somehow he's holding out on us, Jesus bursts on the scene and is just like, hey, we need to do away with the notion that I'm some sort of cosmic killjoy. Like, I'm the Lord of the party. Like, I keep the party going. That's my disposition. Like, if you think I'm here, and now it's the rules, and it's buttoned up, and it's regulations, Jesus wants to blow that out of the water. He's like, there is a life that waits for you. Like, there's a joy. Maybe a way to think about this is Jesus is ultimate. He's the joy bringer. And so when we think about his first sign, when we think about the purpose, even at John chapter 20, John tells us the purpose. He says that you might have life. And we've looked at this over the last few weeks together. It's this zoe. It's more than simply your, the biology. Right? It's more than simply just your body functioning. It's like, no, it's true life. And so right out of the gate, First sign, Jesus is communicating, I'm here to usher in a feast. It's joy, it's connection, it's celebration, it's wiping away every tear. Like, this is what I'm here to do. Now, if that's what he's here to do, we need to look back through this text because it gives us clues then as to, like, well, how in the world is that going to come about? So if the why is the purpose, and he's the Lord of the feast and all of that, and he's bringing the really good wine, and he's bringing life, and he's keeping the party going, and not only keeping it going, but he's making it better. How? Like, how is that going to take place? There's this theme now that we see of provision. So I want to call your attention, and we're kind of jumping around a bit in here, but I want to call your attention to a few things. And one I made mention of already, in John, it's in John chapter 2, verse 6, we read these words. 
Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. So we talked about just the abundance, right? And Jesus' desire to be like, oh, you need some wine? How about 150 gallons? Will that do? But then there's a really key thing here. He didn't go and choose just any sort of jar, any sort of container. I imagine there would have been other things that he could have picked. But there's a very intentional detail that John tells us. And he says these jars had been set there for Jewish purification. And so if you read through the Old Testament, you will see that there are lots and lots of times where God gives very particular instructions about how to be clean, kind of ceremonially clean, like how to go about this, how you're to approach him, how you're to come into a house, how you're to prepare food, how you're to deal with all sorts of things. And then God's people even begin to add to those things to make sure that they didn't break any of those rules. And by the time Jesus shows up, all right, there are rules upon rules upon rules. And people lived with a mindset that like, we better make sure we do the right thing. Like they were longing to be cleansed, but they didn't know if they were ever gonna be good enough to actually have God view them in a way where he would love them and care for them. And so even these jars were a reminder. The people would have seen and they would have been like, yeah, like we need to go through these rituals, these religious practices, just in hopes of getting some sort of cleansing. And there would have been this constant sort of voice in the back of their, their head that just would have been like, is that enough? Are you sure that's enough? Are you really clean? Do you know what you did? Last night, do you know what you're, you're gonna do this upcoming week? Like these things, do you know what you did five years ago, 10 years ago? Like they would have carried that and they would have, like us, because that's the honesty of the scriptures. Yeah, it's a couple thousand years ago, but it's telling the same story that you and I experience. Did you wonder this week, like how you're gonna get cleansing? Maybe you didn't think in that terminology or that language, but there is something, like there's this stain and we don't know, like what's gonna happen? How are we going to get rid of it. And so this reference here to these jars is John writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, Jesus communicating to us, not just the people back then, but you and I right here, right now, with everything that you brought in here this morning, all the ways you feel like you don't measure up, all the shame that continues to haunt you, all the things that you are too afraid to even bring into the light and to speak. Jesus says, I'm doing something new. Like, I'm going to wipe away every tear. There's a new party that's happening, and these old symbols of religion, of you getting to, to do and to achieve and check all the boxes, he's like, I am doing something new right here in your midst. That's the old way to live. There is now this whole new way. Like, even did you notice the detail, which I just love, it just at the very beginning of this chapter, it starts out, on the third day. Have we heard of anything that takes place on the third day that is somewhat significant in the life of the Christian, Right? It's resurrection. I mean, John can't wait to tell the story of Easter already here in chapter two. It's his way of kind of laying out, like on the third day, on the third day. It's significant. There's something that's gonna happen. He's telling us the old, it, like it's out. There's this, this new reality that we get invited into, not because that was bad, but because Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Like you and I can't do enough to cleanse ourselves. I was thinking back on a, um, a book that I read recently, and I think it kind of helps get at this uh, at this particular theme, like maybe ask yourself this question, like how do we experience transformation? And I think those jars stood for sort of the lie of religion. The lie meaning you and I can do enough. You and I can earn the favor of God. 
There's this old, uh, this novel, um, perhaps you've heard of it. It's called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, all right? I'm guessing some of you are familiar with it. Some of you have probably read it. If nothing else, you probably know just sort of the, the phrase that gets tossed around. It's sort of like, oh, it's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde thing that's happening, right? Are we familiar with, with that? And so what it's meant to speak to is this duality of good and evil. And so Dr. Jekyll, in this particular story, in his lab, he concocts this potion and that if he drinks this potion, what will emerge, all right, sort of like Hulk-like if we think about it this way, like what emerges is Mr. Hyde, and it's just evil embodied. And Mr. Hyde, when he's in that character, like does horrific things. But then he'll down some of the potion, and he'll go back to being Dr. Jekyll, trying to do good in the world. But as the story progresses, you realize that he has to consume more and more of the potion in order to even get back to who he is as Dr. Jekyll. Like Hyde seems to be winning the day, but there comes this point where he's like, enough is enough. Hyde has been doing these things. I, like, I need to put Mr. Hyde to death. And so Dr. Jekyll, what he begins to do is he begins to make sure that he's intentionally living in a way that he's, he's loving people, he's caring for people, he's just trying to be a good servant. Like he's doing all kinds of things that people would probably applaud and say, way to go, Dr. Jekyll. And there's this section in the book that I wanna read to you where it speaks of him in that endeavor. And I think it highlights the lie of religion because he's believing a mindset that says, here's how I get cleansing, here's how I get atonement, here's how I get salvation. I'll just do enough good things. Maybe I can tip the scales. Maybe I can make up for all the things, the evil things that Mr. Hyde had done, which is really himself. And he says this, I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past. And I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful of some good. You know how earnestly in the last months of the year I labored to relieve suffering. You know that much was done for others, like so far so good. But as I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect, at the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down. I once more, I was once more Edward Hyde. He's showcasing to us that religion doesn't cut it. You can try and do all the good things, but the evil inside of us, our sin nature, like it will rear its ugly head and we don't know what to do with it. And so we can try as we, as we might, and we can try and be a good person and be a good neighbor and love and go to church and serve people and all good things. But if you're trying to do it in your own strength, it's the lie of religion. It's the purification jars. And we're thinking, okay, I just gotta get a little bit more cleansing. And Jesus is saying, he's bursting on the scene and saying, there's a whole new way to live. And you're invited in this party. You're invited into true life. And as his first sign, he's saying, here's how you can get in on it. Here's what I've come to do. Now, can we talk for a moment Jesus' interaction with his mom, right? Can we just admit that seems like a weird interaction? Like the God of the universe, he's perfect. He's perfectly obedient, um, right? And we look back over this, all right? And she says, Jesus, they don't have any wine. And Jesus responds in verse four, what does that have to do with you and me, woman? Now, I'm guessing, if you think back about your, your upbringing, if you ever like rolled up to your mom's like, what does that have to do with me, woman? Like, I'm guessing that wouldn't have gone well, right? It seems in the moment like 
is Jesus, why is he like snarky and disrespectful, right? I mean, that he says, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? And he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, what is significant here is certainly Jesus is not being sinful. Jesus is not being disobedient. Jesus is thinking in this moment, and he's dwelling upon where his life is headed. And isn't it true that sometimes at like bigger gatherings, maybe you're at a wedding or you're at a funeral or you're at some of these kind of big things in life that you're attending, it causes some reflection, doesn't it? Like we usually tend to ponder a bit more. And Jesus uses a very particular word there, a particular phrase. He says, my hour has not come. Jesus is thinking about, I think it's fair to say this, as you think about the storyline of the Bible, that throughout the scriptures, God, and Jesus takes us upon himself, is referred to as the groom, as the bridegroom. And we, as the people of God, are referred to as the bride. And Jesus, I believe, has in mind that there's this ultimate wedding that's going to take place. But in order for him to bring us in as the bride, and we're not just a, a, any bride, we're a bride that has gone wayward, was off with other lovers. Like, that's, that's the reality of our situation and Jesus knows in order to pursue us, to get us back, it's going to cost him. And so when he says mother, or when he says woman, and he says, my hour has not yet come, that phrase shows up multiple times in the book of John. It's another clue that's here. The hour refers to the hour of his death. It's literally Jesus saying to his mom, what, concern, what has this concern of yours to do with me, Jesus asked. And then him saying, it's not my time to die. And she's like, Think of if he had said it that literally, right? Because that's what John is trying to tell us that he's saying. Jesus threw out a wine. It's not my time to die yet, mom. Like, wait, what? Like, what in the world is happening? But he's thinking about the wedding, and he's thinking about the cost. And it's why this shows up. John 13, they're gathered for the Passover. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come, the hour of his death to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. A few chapters later, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says the same thing. Jesus spoke these things. He looked up to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so the son may glorify you. Jesus knows that for us to be part of the party, for us to experience the lavishness, the graciousness of God that is ever flowing, more so than even 150 gallons of the best wine ever, somebody's gonna have to pay. Like there's going to be a cost. And Jesus willingly does that. And so here already in John chapter two, it's, we're introduced to all of these themes. In his book, Encountering Jesus, Tim Keller speaks of it this way. He begins to kind of paraphrase this interaction. He says it this way. He says, so let's paraphrase what Jesus is saying. Mother, for my people to fall into my arms, I'm going to have to die. For my people to drink the cup of joy and festival blessing, I'm going to have to drink the cup of justice and punishment and death. How is Jesus going to bring us our joy? By losing all of his by leaving his heavenly existence with his father, by leading a lonely, misunderstood life, by going to the cross and dying in our place. We want the Isaiah 25. We want this feast. We want this festival. We want this joy. Jesus is the joy bringer. But it was for the joy that was set before him that what? That he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Like he did that 
so that you and I could be brought in, so we could have a seat at the table, that regardless of what we had done, he would, the God the Father would now see us in the righteousness of Christ. And so, so with that, let's close and just say, like, what does this do in your life, like practically, like what's the takeaway from a wedding a couple thousand years ago? And some of this has been hinted at already, but I think if we boil it down, I think there's a couple key things that we see, and one is about substitution, and the other is about status. Like the storyline of the scriptures that we see, one of a particular theme that shows up again and again and again is the idea of substitution. It's already been in John chapter one, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lamb had to die so that our sins could be dealt with. And more so than that, not only was it, it was that Jesus got our sin and our shame and died the death that you and I deserve, but then we get his righteousness. We get his perfection. We get to be seen now by the Father as perfectly righteous. It's because of substitution. Now, there's a theme of substitution in this. What's interesting is when we look at verse nine, it says this. Now, think, picture this interaction, right? The head waiter has just observed the wine's run out. People are freaking out. There's gonna be a lot of shame. The groom is never going to live this down. And yet, now he has something to bring to him. He says, when the head waiter tasted the wine after it had become, tasted the water, sorry, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. You just picture them. They're like, oh my gosh, wait till he sees. This is going to be amazing, right? And he says, and he called the groom. Substitution, think about this. The groom, rather than being known for, he's the guy that let the wine run out and all the subsequent shame, is now going to forever be remembered as the guy that throws the best party. Like, it's legendary status here. Did he do it? Did he fill the jars up? Did he transform it from water to wine? No. Is Jesus back there being like, uh, hey, I, I did that. Why is the groom getting all the credit? The disposition of our God, though, is to credit his righteousness to us and then to take all of our sin and all of our shame and to go to the cross. Like It's this clue already in here that this is how our God works. And so this week when you're discouraged and the things that, that come up, just remember like you have the righteousness of Christ. You are made new. And if you don't know what you believe and you're wrestling through all this, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome. This is what you're invited into. Come and see. Like Come to get to know the Jesus that dies for you, that says it's not about religion. It's not about achieving. It's about what he has achieved for us. And then, we'll talk here in a moment, it's about status. But I love this quote in that Tim Keller book about encountering Jesus. He quotes his old seminary professor named Ed Edmund Clowney, and he says this about this passage. Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. I think it's worth reading one more time. So Jesus there sat amidst all the joy. He's at this wedding. There's the dancing, the music, I mean, all the stuff. He sat amidst... All the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I can sit amongst all the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Like, this is what we get to drink deeply of, not just someday in the future, but it starts right here, right now. When the scriptures speak of eternal life, it is not just a future reality, it is also a present reality, because Jesus already drank the cup of the Father's wrath, and now 
He has died in your place. He has resurrected. The third day happened. All of this, there's this new reality, and it leads then to a new status. So substitution and status. I don't know how you view yourself. What I do know is that if you're anything like me, the narrative day after day that we run up against is this feeling of like, I don't measure up and being known and identified by mistakes and insecurities and other people's perceptions, like all, all these things. And God is reminding us, no, there's a particular way that he views you because of Jesus. I've had the joy of officiating lots of weddings over the years. And rightly so, there's that moment, right, where the bride walks in and she's in her white dress and she's radiant and glowing and just amazing. Everybody stands and everybody rightly so, like, should direct their attention at her, right? Like, this is their moment, man. Stand up, look at the bride. So we all do that. But I also love just stealing a glance over at the groom for a moment, who sometimes is just a sobbing, blubbering mess at this point, right? And he's got this look on his face like, oh, dang, like, this is amazing. Like, look at her. Like, he's just sort of dumbfounded, right? He's just like, wow, this is amazing. And he's looking at her. And he's just caught up in his view. Now, regardless of what the world says, regardless of what the enemy says about who you are and that you don't measure up and all that, the Bible is telling us over and over and over again, we've got a groom, we're the bride. And the way the groom looks at the bride is the way that God right now, because of the finished work of Jesus, looks at you. Spotless, completely cleansed, pure, radiant, glorious. Like, you belong to him, and he's like, I can't wait for the epic celebration that goes on forever. God is not displeased with you. He's not mad at you. He's not angry at you because you messed up. If you're in Christ, he only sees the righteousness of Christ. He only sees the white dress, and he's just is caught up in it. Is that how you view God's disposition toward you? Because everything out there would say, no, 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 I don't measure up in this and in that. And God is like, yeah, but because of Jesus, there's a whole new reality. And this is why John would write in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. I mean, this is, there's some noise. It's like signifying something is happening here. And saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. This is where the story is heading. And right here, right now, because of Christ, that's how God the Father Use you. So we're going to celebrate that. I'm going to pray for us here in a moment and as the worship team comes back up and as we sing this next song, whether you want to stand and sing, if you want a quiet reflection, I, I don't know what that's going to look like for you, but ask the Holy Spirit, like, remind me of these truths. If you're somebody that's like, I don't know if I believe this, like, ask the Holy Spirit, just ask Jesus, like, would you continue to reveal yourself to me? Teach me. Maybe today's the day you actually move from death to life and you become a follower of him. I want to give us a moment to respond and to be thinking through, okay, 
I want, what do I repent of? All the ways I've tried to make it about me and religion and doing the right things. Just receive God's grace. And then we can rejoice together. And so as the worship team sings, at some point, if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come up and grab some of the communion elements. They're here on either side of the stage. And just take it back to your seat, and I'll call us back in a few moments so we can participate together. If you're joining us at, at home, you can gather elements in your home and then join with us here in just a moment as well. And so as we prepare for this, I'll close, close with one last quote from Encountering Jesus, specifically now as we think about communion. Every time you participate in the Lord's Supper by faith, you are getting a foretaste of that incredible feast. Even if right now you are in the midst of sorrow, sip the coming joy. There is only one love, only one feast, only one thing that can really give your heart all that it needs, and they all await you. Knowing that, you possess something that will enable you to face anything. So I want to invite you to come up in a moment. We're going to participate in this means of grace that God has given us in hopes as well that it strengthens us, that it reminds us of our identity, of our status, of our Savior. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we give you praise for who you are, for what you've accomplished. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to go on this rescue mission, for a joy that was set before you that would, that would cost you everything so we could be a people of joy and a celebration to be part of this wedding feast. So God, even in these next few minutes as we're here together, as your people have gathered in person and online, I pray that you would receive our praise, that we would just get a taste, a bit of a glimpse of what awaits us when every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne, worshiping you, enjoying this epic wedding celebration that just goes on forever. And so thank you that you make that available to us. And God, as we worship you now through song and through this meal, we pray that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience just a deep and abiding joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.